0: Everyone, welcome back to the Insurance in Action Podcast. We are back with our second episode in the podcast series about U.S. regulations on food contact materials and articles. Again, my name is Tommy Savarese. I'm a Food Contact Compliance Manager here at Intertech. And today I'm back with Ashley Spann, Food Contact Regulatory Project Manager. And we're going to continue our conversation on US FDA food contact regulations.
1: Hello again, Tommy. Thank you for having me back.
0: Great to have you back, Ashley. So in our last conversation, we discussed how the US FDA regulates food contact materials and articles, and you gave us three main requirements. The food contact material must be regulated for its intended end use, and meet compositional requirements, must be in compliance with any of the prescribed testing, and must have good manufacturing practices in place. Does that about sum it up correctly so far?
1: Yeah, Tommy, that's correct.
0: Great, so let's uh, go through a scenario here. Let's say that I'm a manufacturer of a product that is for food contact, and in that initial regulatory review, we discover that a substance in my food contact material is either isn't regulated for the intended end use or is not mentioned in the regulation at all. What can we do here?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Tommy, and one that we have to deal with often, actually. So Um, I think one of the most important things to point out is that there is a difference between being non-regulated and non-compliant. So, in either case, there are a number of alternative methods to achieving compliance that don't follow the exact same evaluation or path to compliance that we previously discussed.
0: Oh, I didn't think to distinguish those two from one another. So, So, what's the difference?
1: Sure, so if a substance in question is not regulated, then it may <clears throat> it may not be found within the specific sections of 21 CFR or the US Code of Regulations. So for example, you may have an additive substance that you use in a polymer material and the additive is not currently regulated within the 21 CFR. However, if the substance in question is non-compliant, then that means that the substance may be regulated, but does not fit the intended end use of the product or it may not meet the restrictions of a substance put forth in the regulations. So keeping with the example of the additive, maybe it's regulated within 21 CFR section 177.15.20, but it's listed for use only as an extrusion aid and not to exceed 0.2% weight of the polymer. And if you use it at 0.5%, then it would be considered non-compliant. Also, Let's say that compositionally, all of the substances within your polymer are regulated, but when the polymer was tested per 1771520, the results do not comply. This would also lead to a non-compliant product, as food compliance requires both to have the favorable results.
0: Got it. Thank you. So, if my product has a substance that falls within either one of these categories, not regulated or not compliant, is there any way to continue forward with obtaining compliance? Or my dreams of food contact compliance be crushed?
1: <laughs> Def- definitely not crushed, Tommy. At <laughs> least not yet. So there are some alternative methods for achieving compliance.
0: Awesome. Well, that's that's good news. I didn't want to be crushed. Can you uh, tell me more about these alternative paths to compliance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one option is based on 21 CFR section 170 and that covers the threshold of regulation, often referred to as TOR, and that lists the criteria that may be used to exempt the food contact material from having to be listed in the regulation. So, the first criteria for this exemption is if the intended use of the material results in dietary exposure of 0.5 parts per billion or less. Um, The dietary exposure is actually the exposure of chemicals or substances that are inadvertently present in the food due to food contact material that the consumer would be exposed to.
0: Okay, I'm following so far.
1: All right. And then another way in which TOR can exempt a food contact material is if the material is cleared as a direct additive under 21 CFR section 172 and the exposure from the food contact use is less than 1% of the acceptable daily intake, or referred to as the ADI. And the ADI is the amount of specific substance that can be ingested by a consumer on a daily basis over their lifetime without posing any health risk. The only caveat to using the threshold of regulation exemption is that the substance must not be a carcinogen or cancer-causing, and it cannot contain any impurities that are carcinogens.
0: Yeah, that seems logical.
1: One of the upsides to the threshold of regulation exemptions is that they are applicable to the substance for the listed intended use regardless of the supplier or manufacturer of the substance, which isn't always the case with some of the other methods.
0: Okay, so you're saying that if the additive that I'm using in my polymer is exempt under the threshold of regulation, I'll be able to source that additive from alternate suppliers or manufacturers and it wouldn't change the compliance status?
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Gotcha. So are the remaining options only specific to a supplier or manufacturer then?
1: No, there are two other instances that are only based on the substance and the intended end use. So the first is if the substance is covered under a prior sanction, and the second is if the substance is generally recognized as safe, or you'll hear me refer to that as grass.
0: And how do I know if those would be applicable?
1: Yeah, so prior sanctions are substances that the US FDA or US Department of Agriculture has authorized for use in or on food before the 1958 Food Additives Amendment. These can be found in 21 CFR section 181. And the, the section includes general provisions for substances. In sections 181.22 through 181.34 list the specific prior sanctioned food ingredients a substance that is considered grass or generally recognized as safe can be found in 21 CFR sections 182, 184, and 186. And with respect to food contact, sections 184 and 186 are the most applicable. Section 184 contains the list of direct food substances affirmed as grass, and 186 contains the list of indirect food substances affirmed as grass. So as I've said previously, it is important to note that grass food additives can only be used for food contact when they comply with good manufacturing practices and only when intended for the uses specified in the applicable CFR section.
0: Okay, so basically prior sanctions and grass substances have lists, similar to what the specific material regulations may have. And my substance may be found in these lists rather than within the specific section of my final product it's categorized in. I think that's pretty straightforward but can, you can probably anticipate my next question. What if the substance is not found in any of these sections or is non-conforming?
1: Yeah, Tommy, I kind of knew that was coming. So, <laughs> one of the next options would be to apply for apply for a food contact notification, otherwise known as an FCN. Um, to give you a little bit of a background on this, prior to 2000, the CFR was updated by submitting a food additive petition to the FDA for inclusion in into the 21 CFR. For your specific substance, you would be able to submit a petition, and then the regulation itself would be updated to include that substance. However, post-2000, the industry began relying on the food contact notification process, and food contact notifications are proprietary to the notifier and the manufacturer and are only applicable to themselves and the downstream customers.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So if I were to obtain an FCN for my additive substance, no one else could use it?
1: Kind of, but not quite. So to start, it would actually be the manufacturer or supplier of the substance that would obtain the FCN. So the manufacturer of the additive would obtain an FCN for a specific use and a set and like set limitations or restrictions for that additive. Okay. So let me kind of explain it this way. Let's say I am the manufacturer of Ashley's additive, and I have obtained an FCN for this additive to be used as a processing aid in polypropylene for all food types and conditions of use C through G. Now, if you buy Ashley's additive and use it in your polypropylene formulation, then it would be considered compliant as long as you use it in accordance with the FCN requirements. So although the FCN is specific to the manufacturer, the FCN would still be applicable as it is used further down the supply chain. That being said, if you wanted food contact compliance for your polypropylene for conditions used A, it would not be compliant as mine was for C through G. Similarly, if another manufacturer sells an additive that is the exact same substance as mine, but does not have an FCN, This would not be considered compliant because the FCN for Ashley's additive wouldn't be applicable for another manufacturer.
0: Okay, so I wouldn't be able to obtain an FCN on my final product then. The FCN would be pertinent to my supplier and the food contact substance. Yes, you got it. All right, so far we have the TOR, prior sanction, GRASS, and FCN. Does that include all of the alternate methods that we can take to achieve compliance?
1: Definitely not, Tommy. So, uh. a few other ways to demonstrate compliance and the most common strategies for non-compliant food contact materials include migration testing, migration calculations, or even the use of a functional barrier.
0: Wait, 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 wait. I thought you said you couldn't just test for compliance. would migration testing to demonstrate compliance be doing just that?
1: Yeah, yeah I can see how that sounds, but let I me I thought I caught you. <laughs> No, definitely not. So when I say you cannot only test to establish compliance, this is different than testing to determine no migration. So if we keep on with our example, if you, the manufacturer of the polypropylene, does not know what additives are in the final food contact material because that compositional review has not yet been completed, then you wouldn't be able to determine what you're testing for. So and just to say you want to test for everything isn't a feasible strategy. However, if a compositional review has been completed and the only outlier in your polypropylene formulation is Ashley's additives, such that you know exactly what you are analyzing for, then a migration can be done targeting that specific substance. So to demonstrate no migration, the best way is to perform a migration test on the product per its intended use, using the food stimulants and conditions of use based on the FDA guidance. And if the migration study results in a non-detectable dietary exposure, of less than 0.5 parts per billion in food, then it would result in the substance not being considered an indirect food additive and is therefore exempt. However, it is important to note that a risk assessment is required to be conducted to determine the potential of carcinogenicity. It also is important to keep in mind that this is not the same as a regulatory compliance testing that is specified within the product's appropriate 21 CFR section. FDA compliance testing is only relevant to cleared materials and is not intended to form a basis for establishing exposure levels. So, migration testing is used to determine whether a new, uncleared substances are expected to become a component of the food. The differences in the approach mean that the FDA testing cannot generally be considered synonymous with testing for compliance in other regions.
0: Yeah, I see the difference there. So, with our example, a migration study would be performed on the polypropylene looking for Ashley's additive using the simulants and conditions of use applicable, applicable to my final food contact material. And if it results in a non-detectable dietary exposure of less than 0.5 parts per billion in the food, then the additive would be exempt.
1: Yep, you got it. I'm glad All you right. mentioned the specific conditions of use because these are some of the factors that can impact migration, like contact time, contact temperature and food, or the simulant types. And these types of parameters can be adjusted to be less aggressive in order to achieve no migration. However, those less aggressive limitations would also apply to the compliance of the product as well.
0: Okay, so it's kind of similar to the TOR exemption we first discussed with a dietary exposure of 0.5 part per billion or less.
1: Yeah, that's correct, Tommy. And it's a good connection to make.
0: So what's the difference between migration testing and migration calculations?
1: Yeah, so in contrast to the migration testing, where we would test to show that the food contact substance didn't migrate into the food at a level level higher than 0.5 parts per billion, we can try to avoid testing by assuming that 100% of the substance will migrate into the food. So by assuming 100% migration, this value would then be converted into a dietary concentration. And again, if the results yield a calculated value of less than 0.5 parts per billion, it would be exempt. This approach is often used when there is a small quantity of food contact substance against a large quantity of food, such as a repeated use product scenario.
0: Thanks, that all makes sense. So I think the final option you mentioned was a functional barrier. Can you explain that a bit more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a functional barrier is a food contact layer that separates substances from food, preventing their migration to food to become food additives. So as you might have picked up on in our first discussion, not all barriers are considered functional barriers. If you think back to the ink on the outside of the candy box, even though the ink isn't direct, indirect food contact or indirect contact with the candy, the paperboard was not considered a functional barrier and therefore the ink was also subject to food contact regulatory requirements. The only default functional barrier is aluminum. Other materials such as One mil polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, used under room temperature conditions, or even ethylene vinyl alcohol have been used. But it is necessary to perform the no-migration analysis that we just discussed to demonstrate that the material is an effective barrier. Typically, the key considerations of functional barriers are their material properties and their thicknesses.
0: OK, that sounds pretty straightforward. Can you give me an example where this might be used?
1: Yeah, for food contact materials or articles, functional barriers are used between the food contact material side and the non-food contact layers in like a multilayer laminate. So for example, you might have a structure that has a polyester and an adhesive, then a foil layer, and then additional layers of adhesive, nylon, polyethylene. As the foil would be considered the functional barrier, The adhesive, nylon, and polyethylene materials would therefore not be considered food contact materials.
0: Wow. Well, interesting. Ashley, I, I think we have to call it quits for today. I have to say that you really became prepared to share your wealth of knowledge in this area. The last two podcasts have really given our listeners a great overview of how the FDA regulates food contact materials. You gave us so much information, in fact, that I think I'll give you a break in the next episode. How about we trade places and I can take a stab at answering all of your questions?
1: Oh, now you're talking. What's the topic?
0: Well, you already covered a whole bunch on the FDA's requirements at the federal level. How about we take a look at how states play a role in the regulation of food contact materials?
1: Yeah, that sounds like a great plan, Tommy. I look forward to it.
0: Okay, settled then. Well, thank you everyone for listening in and please join us for our third episode coming soon. Thanks again, Ashley, and until next time, have a great day.